Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. It's the summer holidays and we've got you a treat. In fact, it's a very big souvenir episode. I'm Jake Cunningham, and joining me this week are Kelly Powell. Hello. And Caitlin Quinlan. Hi. That is so much pep. You <laughs> know, was, it's, it's like half ride. eight. What, you, <laughs> what have you been doing this morning to have that much pep? I had a nice walk from the station, had a <laughs> oh, coffee this morning. It's very sunny outside. It's God, a lovely nice day. Morning. Yeah. You're an inspiration to us all, though. I try. <laughs> Uh, and as well as these two, uh, to give you even more to take home of the souvenir, we've got picture postcard guests in the film's director, Joanna Hogg, and music supervisor, Ilona Cheshire, coming up. So it is an absolute bumper episode, and we're very excited to be sharing those conversations with you. Um, but if you've been living under a rock and you haven't heard of a film called The Souvenir, do not worry. We will give you a uh, a quick bit of revision beforehand about it, who Joanna Hogg is as well. And then we'll, uh, we'll delve into our thoughts on this film as well. Uh, so The Souvenir is about Julie, played by Honor Swinton Byrne, if that name sounds slightly familiar. She's the daughter of Tilda Swinton. And she's playing a young film student who's struggling to find a uh, firm direction in both life and in work. Uh, and she meets an unwavering and decisive man in the form of Tom Burke's Anthony. Uh, the two take to one another and an intense romance blossoms. Uh, however, as the relationship develops, it becomes clear that Anthony is not being completely honest about all aspects of himself. What a naughty boy. <laughs> uh, Caitlin, can you get me and Kelly and all of our listeners up to speed on Joanna Hogg? Indeed. Um, so she's a British director. The Souvenir, I think, is her fourth um, feature film. Um, she's someone who I think has kind of always um, interrogated these kind of middle class spaces, upper middle class spaces in her films. Um, she kind of is known for very sort of static camera um, observational work on kind of, you know, these intimate relationships between couples or groups of people. Um, and I think a lot of her characters are quite insufferable in many ways. Um, and that, that can be something that people find hard to engage with. But what she does, I think, is she presents a very kind of observational um, and self-aware uh, kind of tableau of these people's lives. Um, so, yeah, I think she's a really interesting director. She um, She's kind of also known for not really using scripts that much. She is quite a, quite a sort of... Uh, prepared improvisation I'd say um, in her films um, with sort of professional and non-professional actors um, so she's yeah there's there's something that can be quite loose about her films but they're equally sort of very well researched and very prepared and I think she sort of says for for most of her films she compiles sort of a big document that everyone refers back to and it has everything laid out and all the kind of you know things that people need to know but she's very open to improvisation and and sort of you know, script fluidity, I think. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, really interesting. The Souvenir, as I say, is her fourth um, feature um, based on her own life story in many ways. Um, kind of, you know, a semi-autobiographical tale based on her own life as a young film student and a relationship that she was involved with. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's a, a really, really interesting film and a, an interesting look at kind of her personal, you know, memory and past. Yeah, um, and weirdly, it, oh, it's not weird, I suppose, but it, it is part one of two films, um, which for, for a pretty 
low budget indie film from someone like Joanna Hogg, who people who, the name has been out there, but it's not like she's mm. uh, a Marvel bringing in the big bucks at the box <laughs> office. Um, it's quite exciting to see someone come out uh, with a film immediately be so well regarded. It's a Sundance Jury Prize winner, and uh, she was already making plans. She's been shooting the sequel already, um, and it's quite cool to see a film like this mm. be to- talk- having to talk about the sequel for it. Uh, yeah. I don't know why that is so exciting, but it, it is it is quite cool. <laughs> um, and I think uh, what's really interesting, when people might notice on the posters for this, uh, that... Martin Scorsese is down as an executive producer on it, and he, he's great at kind of lending uh, his his name to projects and getting involved with projects where he can, he can boost the profile of people that are doing really interesting things. He did it earlier this year with Alice Rohrwacher and mm-hmm. uh, Lazaro Felice, um, and I, I think he he was like in a hotel room uh, in London, and he didn't have anything to do, and he was staying here while shooting um, one of his fairly recent films, and he wanted some films to watch, and. Uh, one of the films that he got sent was Joanna Hogg's work. Really? And he and he watched those and was like, who is this? This is great. <laughs> and uh, then got Martin Scorsese got put in touch with Joanna Hogg. And these, wow. are, Dream. Um, this is yeah. not two people that I would have thought of no, putting together yeah, no. at all, but they like really get along and really like each other's work. <laughs> That's amazing. It's very, very cool. It's really cool. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, th- thank you uh, for that kind of truncated biography <laughs> yes. there, Caitlin. Now that we all know everything about her, <laughs> uh, I think it's time to hear from her uh, and also from some lovely roadworks as well. Yeah, yes, apologies about that. Um, yeah, I, I got to speak to Joanna Hogg um, for, yeah, for, for the podcast. Um, she was really wonderful. We chatted um, about Souvenir, about her process in, in making the film. Um, a little bit of a kind of teaser on the on the sequel, you know, her ideas about how she's approaching that one. Um, and yeah, just generally about, about how she feels about the film. So yeah, enjoy. Welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. <laughs> um, so I guess if we can start maybe just by talking about the origins of this story and the film um, that you have made, Souvenir, um, and the kind of background of it, I guess. Uh, well, it has a, um, a background going quite far. I think I first started thinking about uh, this story in 1988, um, very soon after, only about three years after um, I was in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, while I was at film, just at the beginning of film school, I got involved in a relationship that was quite challenging. I won't say too much about it, yeah. but, but it, but just to say that it was the inspiration for this story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, yeah, already in 1988, was making notes about it, and and actually already was thinking of the story being split in 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 two parts. Mm-hmm. That the film would be would would be two films, not just one film, and that. The first film would be about a relationship, um, and then the second part would be, in a sense, uh, a, a response to the relationship, um, but a, uh, about a young filmmaker. So that was about as far as mm-hmm. my notes got back then. And then every now and again, um, I would think about this story that I wanted to make, um, entirely inspired by this, this relationship. Um, but never either through being involved in another project or or just um, maybe a lack of uh, confidence in, mm-hmm. in or, or, or knowledge of how to tell the story um, and, and yes yeah, certainly in in the late 80s I hadn't yet um, started thinking about using my own life as 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 inspiration mm-hmm. for something so i hadn't there was no evidence of being able to do that so anyway it took me i think then fast forward to 2015 and i had made exhibition and was looking around for the next project and that um i thought well now is the time mm-hmm. to look back in a way because all my other films the other three films were all very much to do with the present moment and so this was uh, a a point that I wanted to look back and that then began a a journey of rediscovering in a sense who who I was Mm -hmm. in my early 20s. Do you think there's a kind of level of distance that you have to achieve personally before you're able to actually interrogate your own past in that way? I I, I, I definitely I think think that I needed uh, yeah time needed to pass 
before um, I was able to do that. And, 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 then, and then it meant I could, uh, I was obviously relying on my memory of mm -hmm. this time, but I, I, I started to think, well, I, it wasn't so much about specific memories, it was more about an impression of that time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also uh, that I could tell the story more from the female point of view yeah. than from the, the sort of other half of the relationship because I always felt, well, this was somebody I had a relationship with who I never really understood completely um, and had wondered, well, how do, I, you know, how do I tell the story when I don't actually understand one of the main <laughs> characters? And then, yeah, then I thought, well, actually, that's interesting, an interesting exploration in itself to sort of try and discover who, who they were in a way and who, who, who I was. Mm. There seems to be a very, that very personal angle to it, but I wonder as well, being kind of so present in your own past, did your approach as a filmmaker change or were there elements that you kind of felt, you know, you had to step back from or you felt you were being pulled into it too much? I, you know, that you're kind of crossing that, that boundary between the, you know, the personal and the, and the relatable, I think, in this film. Um, so it's, it's, it must be interesting as a filmmaker to live within that world again. Uh, well, it was, it, it, it was very interesting to me to, to revisit projects and ideas that I had in, in my early 20s mm -hmm. and, and, and to use, in a way, as inspiration for this story, Th those, uh, yeah, those early creative sparks um, I had as a, as a, as a film student. Yeah. Um, and that was quite satisfying in a way because uh, there were all these projects that never got made mm. um, that either would just remained on the page or, or, or was expressed in the Super 8 film or in still photographs. And so I was able to um, look at those projects again, look at those ideas and those images and, and, and sort of give them a second life in a sense. Yeah, and with the casting process, was that more difficult because these were people that you had known in your life and you were trying to pair actors with real people or did that not really kind of affect the, the process? Well, it did inevitably yeah. because I, was, I, I, I wanted to find someone who had uh, uh, some of the, the, the creative impetus that I had at the time and, and, and the quite uh, sort of stubborn um, uh, um, am ambition in a way of being a filmmaker, someone who, 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 who could be creative and believably be that creative being, that young filmmaker in front of the camera who who isn't necessarily comfortable in front of the camera is more mm -hmm. more interested in recording themselves more of an observer so I, I that was a challenge to find someone who 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 I felt could be believably mm -hmm. be that young woman and and have a connection with myself yeah and I think there's also something about the film in the way that it's scripted or not scripted and these performances don't almost don't feel like performances it feels we are like we are observers in in this life and in this story um in terms of script then and preparation is that something that you don't kind of try and stick to in such a rigid way you're, you're sort of allowing the fluidity of the process a little more um perhaps if you have any thoughts on that i think well, i mean i actually when i'm when i'm when i'm writing my films um they that the the i'm writing in quite a detailed way even though I'm not always expressing everything that everybody says mm -hmm. in them, it, they are actually very, very detailed manuscripts. Um, but then what happens is it's only during the process of the, 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 the shooting of the film that I let go of some of these ideas. Mm -hmm. um, so I need to have this very precise map, but then it's about letting go and, 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 and allowing in what's happening around me. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I find very interesting I think you kind of mentioned it just before about the perspective of a young woman um, and watching this film as a young woman to me there are scenes that you know not to not to spoil anything I, I suppose but there are scenes that really I find I find very affecting um, and I think Julie is a very apologetic character in lots of ways and that's something that um, yeah I think as women maybe we do too much of and we kind of we we make ourselves a bit smaller and that I think the film kind of really interestingly approaches that that topic I don't know if that was something you'd always felt or had in mind and wanted to portray in this film well I I, I mean that was definitely what yes one aspect mm -hmm. of, of of seeing a young woman being being caught up in 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 something that she's not able to get herself out of maybe doesn't have the will to mm. get herself out, out of it um, but I'm very aware now um, I mean I actually haven't watched the film part one for a while but I'm, I'm, I'm aware that I've portrayed somebody 
um, who is very much led by the 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 Anthony, the the, mm -hmm. the, the the man she's having the relationship with, very much sort of led by him, and and she does fight back sometimes. But I think I fought back um, possibly more than mm. than I have my character doing, and and I and, and what I found is that. Um, I'm depicting her as I thought of her at that time, but now with much more, well, I've now just met, been shooting part two. I've had a lot more time to think about the character mm -hmm. and wonder about the things that I omitted, um, th that I was almost unaware of omitting, but, mm. the, but that it's very, it's a challenge in, in, in two hours to completely show somebody in a 360 yeah. degree way. And I, and I, and I realized there, yes, there, there's some, some aspects of myself that, that that are missing, but I, but then I sort of redress that a little bit in part two. Mm. And I think with any kind of active memory, in a way, you're always going to have these moments where perhaps something is blurry or something is, you know, in in full clarity, and and it's about how you kind of navigate that, I suppose, which is really interesting for this film. Um, how you could rewrite your own history in some ways, or you know, introduce elements that you hadn't, you know, li not necessarily lived, but. Um, Yes, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. It's just, yeah, the, the act of memory, I think, is really interesting in this film. Well, I, I, and I think, because I, uh, I allow so many new things to come mm. into it because of the nature of the way that I work, it ends up being this patchwork of some things that are, uh, were, were, uh, are memories that I think happened, um, other things that are completely invented that come through my casting and, and a character or someone I've cast who, who brings something new into it into it of, of themselves mm -hmm. and I'm inviting those things so it's it's a really uh, sort of interesting yeah it's, as I say a sort of patchwork of, of, of sort of real and not real and I, I'm a bit confused myself now <laughs> about what, what, what happened and what didn't and yeah. of course memory is a yeah is, is a is a um, it, it can fool you. Mm, yeah, and I think maybe it's almost nice that you had Tilda Swinton working on this project, and I know you're good friends with her from a long time ago. Um, there are those personal ties, I suppose, in this film to that that truth of the of the history. But then, you know, it's it's almost there's something quite satisfying about having her daughter in the film as well. Um, and what was the process like of casting Anna um, and working with Tilda and, and that mother daughter relationship? I, I think it's quite fascinating for this. Well, it was. It, I mean, now it seems so obvious that um, it should be Anna playing mm. Julie. But I spent many months looking elsewhere. But not finding that uh, that person who could portray that 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 creative inspired being, um, because I met actresses and I felt what their lives were about being an actor, and I wanted someone who was creating their own projects and 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 had this yeah this ambition to be a filmmaker and and yeah Honor in the end was perfect for that, um, and then there was something very natural about working with Tilda again mm -hmm. and with her daughter who mm -hmm. I knew already. So it felt, um, it, it, yes, it felt, it felt right. And as you say, it, it, it made it feel like an extension of the past. Mm -hmm. There was something, there was something, it, it, everything sort of connected together. Mm -hmm. But while we were working together, we didn't question it. It yeah. was something that, that happened, yeah, yeah. yeah very, very naturally. And, and of course, Tilda herself felt very at home in the space we created which was based on an apartment I mm. once lived in, which Tilda had visited mm. many times. It must have been something kind of eerie about that, maybe, <laughs> just to have those spaces recreated. And yeah, Yes, for all of us, I think. Yeah. Um, and you spoke about the decision to have the film in two parts. Um, you didn't know that you were going to do that going into the first film or that had always been the kind of the, the intention? Yeah. That was always, the, always intention. the intention. And in fact, the intention had been to shoot both films together. Right. To, to, to have a longer shoot and, 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 and make them back to back. Mm -hmm. And I was a little bit disappointed when we weren't able to do that. And it was a financial thing because mm -hmm. we needed to raise a lot more money to shoot both films back to back. Yeah. And that didn't happen. And so I thought, oh, what a shame because there's so much... Uh, of, of a build-up to making a film and once you've got the momentum going you feel well you could just sort of carry on yeah it's an exhausting process it, it, it just felt that would have been great but now uh, now I that didn't happen and we have sort of a couple of years in between it's it's I think it's a good thing mm -hmm. actually because many more ideas have uh, come to come about and there's been time for the the part two to uh, 
uh, yeah, develop on its own. Mm-hmm. And you're shooting that now. That's in the process of being post-production or post-production, post-production. because we finished filming a couple of weeks ago. Amazing. Um, and are you able to tell us anything we can expect <laughs> from the film? Or you kind of touched on what the the angle that you're going for, I suppose, the sort of post-relationship um, aftermath, maybe. Uh, I, I, yeah. Yes, I, uh, yeah, that's it. And and it takes place uh, just a couple of days after uh, part one. Ended okay. so it's sort of pretty much where where uh, where it e- part one ended, and then it goes into Julie's future and her future as a um, creative being. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I will end on that note. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, all the best for the film. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Lovely. Thank you, Joanna. And thank you, Roadworkers. That was <laughs> quite the symphony. Uh, uh, so uh, I just want to start by actually getting uh, into Honest Winston Burns' uh, role in this film, because we actually spoke in our previous episode, Pain and Glory, about directors, uh, in that case, Pedro Almodovar and Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz, finding, finding trust in actors to deal with very personal work. It's very interesting that these two films uh, are actually both out in cinemas uh, at the moment. I, I would mm. highly recommend them as a double bill. Um, and whilst you may initially hear kind of uh, Joanna Hogg casting Honest Winton Byrne, her friend Tilda Swinton's daughter, mm-hmm. as the lead in her brand new film, um, you might think, oh gosh, um, like the nepotism of that, the ego <laughs> and that. Um, but thinking back to the conversation we had about Pain and Glory and this idea of directors needing to find people that they can really entrust with personal work, and it made me think that makes total sense that it would be honour to play this role because it's someone that she has absolutely spent enough time with and knows as a person to be able to hand over what is an incredibly personal piece of work and kind of give them licence to interrogate it, interpret it and voice it in a way that isn't entirely Joanna's. It's it's certainly honour is in there as well yeah um, and it's interesting but that but I think she only cast her like, two <clears throat> weeks before they started shooting um, I read I think in the Dazed article uh, that came out on honour uh, that you know they went through a rigorous casting process and they saw a lot of people and then it was only like this one conversation that Joanna had I think in the article it, it describes how um, Tilda Swinton had sort of orchestrated this chance <laughs> meeting in a train station between the two of them which is in itself a nice little story yeah. um, and then they had this conversation about just boys and where she was with her life and mm-hmm. uh, and she kind of I think Joanna saw her in, this, in a different light and, and, and sort of the spark was there yeah um, well, and it's an incredible innocence that comes through in the performance um, which perhaps you could only get from someone who really wasn't expecting to be doing it in the first place. Yeah, and I think this comes back as well to the idea of Joanna Hogg using non-professional actors and and really kind of, yeah, not relying on people that that act um, regularly. So, you know, this is the first thing that that Honours Swinton Byrne has ever done. and obviously she's going to be in the sequel too, but but acting was not necessarily one of her kind of, it w- wasn't in her plans. Um, and I think that works particularly well when you're looking at a character like Julie, who is so naive in her in life, you know, in this moment and doesn't know what direction she's moving in, doesn't know really how to stand up for herself in lots of ways, is very kind of unprepared for lots of things that life is throwing at her right now, regardless of how kind of, you know, wealthy and privileged she is. There's a, cer- there's a certain sense of sort of emotional immaturity, I think. Um, and 
for me, that makes the casting very, very effective. And yeah, you know, there is the kind of the fact that this is the child of Tilda Swinton, who was the best friend of Joanna Hogg at film school. But in a way, for me, that brings the film, you know, really nicely into the present moment because, you know, Tilda was there at the time with Joanna when this thing, when this relationship was happening to her. Um, and the fact that Tilda's daughter can now come in and, and sort of play the role of Joanna in this film, essentially, um, I think works really nicely for, for the kind of sentimentality and, and emotion of the story. The, the film is certainly in, interrogating the class and privilege that everyone involved comes from and actually also the feelings that Joanna Hong as a filmmaker has. Like Julie, her surrogate, is wanting to make a film of real people in Sunderland and she says specifically during an interview uh, or a funding session that she, she wants to... Uh, escape the privilege that she can't remember the, the bubble, dialogue. yeah, yeah. yeah. Bubble, yeah. And the film also asks us as viewers to have to do that mm. to this film itself. I think. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, ironically, you know, it starts off with these with this sort of documentary-like footage of this of this uh, industrial town, and that's what she's interested in. Yet the movie she's making in the film is like some weird highfalutin art. Like a student Derek Jarman type. Yeah, yeah, kind of thing. Um, which is apparently what she made in film school and her first film that she yeah. made anyway. And Tilda Swinton was in and it. And Tilda Swinton yeah. was in it, yeah. And then, <laughs> um, you know, Joanna Hogg is famously making films about the middle class. So she didn't quite break out of her bubble. Mm. Um, but, but it's yeah, it's interesting to interrogate that and look at it from that lens. Mm. Speaking of lensing, um, I want to talk about how she kind of transforms the way that uh, she observes people in the film. I don't want to use the term female gaze because I don't think that is um, particularly well defined. It's it's not just the idea of a, a female director shooting something, um, but I think it is worth talking about how she how she photographs the film, how she photographs people. She generally keeps them at arm's length. There's not a lot of close-ups here. There's occasionally uh, floating camera, which will go into kind of 16 mil grainy personal stuff, mm-hmm. um, which I think maybe is. It's almost like this dreamlike memory of how she would have been shooting at the time. Uh, yeah. um, and it, I think <clears throat> it's a really beautiful film to look at. Um, Kaylin, how did you interpret how uh, Joanna shoots the film? I think there are some really interesting moments um, where she's shooting Julie and she's kind of, you know, allowing the camera to linger on on her and her face and her body in certain ways. Um and there's one particular moment sort of as the relationship between Julie and Anthony, the old man uh, played by Anthony Burke, uh, Tom Burke, sorry, um, is is kind of developing uh, there. You know, they're in the bedroom and she kind of walks in in this in this lingerie set that he's bought for her in um, in Paris, I think it is, or Venice or somewhere. And you're very aware that the camera is lingering on her sort of, you know, stood in the doorway but but from afar, you know, you you have a kind of the spread of the whole room. But there's something I think very kind of something that resonated with me, maybe as as a woman, and understanding how women are often looked at in society and and look and gazed upon. Um, but feeling very much like you you understand how Julie feels in that moment. You understand how Julie sees herself, even though we're the ones looking at her. Yeah, it doesn't just point the camera in a mid shot to her and kind of pass up and down her body to yeah. get that kind of and artificial it, voyeuristic mm, feeling. Mm. It's rather that sense of being on the end of a desired look and well, how that of, can in, f- fill a room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, f- I think particularly it's interesting the way that that whole shot is lit. Mm. It's not... It's romant- lit. It's lit. <laughs> that whole shot it's is lit. lit. <laughs> no, it's not romanticised in any way. It is no. just like stark lighting of a room yeah. of what it, would, what it would be like. You know? Yeah, uh, because you see the whole room and you yeah, see space. Bare. Yeah, it's bare. Mm. You, see, you see the space that she's entering into. You see the way she's kind of pressed against the doorframe and there's that that vulnerability and that ex- she's totally exposed and I think she's she, you, you almost can feel how exposed she mm. feels which I think is a re- there's something so interesting about that shot that mm. that really kind of hit me when I first saw it yeah um and well and that's that sparse space that's that's one of the many sets that was built inside this enormous airplane hangar mm. and so when you watch the film you see that this is part of the set for the film that Julia's making it's the apartment it's the bedroom um, and it's all meticulously reconstructed from Joanna's memory mm-hmm. um, but then also in a really great hybrid fashion you've got she asked Anna to bring bits of her childhood as well so the bedroom uh, is like the toys is a mixture of oh, genuinely yeah. Joanna's stuff and Anna's stuff and mm. um, and it's it's all within this all shot within this one set 
And what I think is really lovely about how, how the film is shot and how it's edited, I suppose, as well, is that it it almost comes together like a puzzle that's being built from the middle outwards. And it's like at the beginning we get these glimpses of the apartment, these glimpses of a relationship of a person and how they understand themselves and in relation to the outside world. And gradually that world and that person gets built and we see a bit more space. The apartment gets a little bigger, the camera moves a bit further back and as Julie understands herself more, we do get this big picture like it's, it's just a really neat technique that i think comes from the fact that this film was shot in story order mm-hmm. and so julie or honor learns about the character as they make the film yeah because she wasn't given a script was she exactly mm. so caitlin you mentioned this map yeah. that joanna hogg will build at the start of a project yeah and so tom burke's anthony he had this map beforehand months in advance he knew this character he knew how these events would play out Mm. and julie doesn't and i think this relationship which is all about i think it's power and innocence vulnerability um exploitation Mm -hmm. it's really comes through from the fact that tom burke ultimately did wield the power of knowledge Mm. he knew how everything was going to play out he went into every scene with just that extra knowledge of yeah. how to manipulate exactly the scenario, which is so reflective of his character. I think there's also this other really interesting layer to that, which is that, you know, Joanna Hogg doesn't sort of say that the, you know, the scene where Julie discovers something about about Anthony is the first time that we see, you know, on a film of shooting that scene, because it's not, because, you know, they will have done multiple takes and, you know, eventually Anna knows what's happening and maybe we, we've seen the third take and it's not her, you know, first initial reaction. But in a way that works so well for the character because she's she's willfully denying a lot of what she probably knows to be true about the man that she's in love with as well. So there's that layer to it as well, where it's like, you know, Honor's, Honor gradually learns these things and is having to react the kind of surprise or the letdown or the, you know, the disappointment of this truth. But in, in, in the same, you know, way, Julie is, is constantly doing that. She's constantly covering up the fact that she knows more than, you know, maybe she, you know. Mm, she, I, so that's... <laughs> That's kind of like what I was a, a bit annoyed about. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of, <laughs> um, when I was watching the film, that that kind of thing was frustrating for me um, to see because I was like, how naive can you be it's to stand up for yourself a little bit more? And I was getting frustrated that yeah. she, you know, this naivete, I was like, is it an act? Is it not a, like, you know, wake up, shake, you know, you, uh, you, know, you want to shake her mm. out of her sort of... Um, this world that she's sort of keeping herself in, um, but but you do kind of gradually see her breaking, like breaking out against that, because because you know the spaces that they occupy as a couple, you know, we see a lot of privileged spaces, and mm. and and you get to see Julie at home, sort of in the comfort of her home, and 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 more like herself, um, and also you get to see her in this relationship in these very austere sort of uh, settings and as the film goes on uh, sort of as she gets to know herself a little bit more you see her um pushing back against those structures yeah. which i think was a way of showing that she's is going to break out and i and i hope maybe the second film yeah. shows more of that i think there's something that's really interesting is that i i know what you mean about like breaking out and i think I think for me, the film's more about breaking out of a kind of, you know, this this shell that she that she's kind of, you know, covering herself with as as a woman and as a young girl. Like for me, that's what resonates the most. Whereas the the kind of the element of breaking out from her privilege and you know her wealth in this world that she's grown up in, to me, it's not so much that she's trying. Or I guess she is trying to break out of that, but. But re- really, the kind of the fundamental realization is that she can't and she shouldn't because that's what privilege is about. You need to own your privilege, and I think that's what Joanna Hogg is really trying to do here. And I think that's what she does in a lot of her films. She's so incredibly self-aware, and there is no point in any of her films where you think she doesn't know that these characters are, you know, either p- particularly insufferable or you know quite hard to relate to. She's very, very conscious of that, and I think the you know even even at the start of the souvenir the footage that you see is actually Joanna Hogg's old film school footage she she shot that in on the you know the 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 docks in Sunderland or wherever she was that kind of naive young director who thought oh you know a, a wealthy girl from 
from, you know, the south of England, wherever, can go and understand what it's like to live in the docks in Sunderland. And, you know, that she I think there's something quite kind of, you know, positive in the fact that she's going back and she's saying, look, this is what I thought I could do. This is what Julie thinks she can do, but she can't. She, this is not her world. So for me, it's less about it's about real, realizing that Julie can't and probably shouldn't try and break away from that standpoint, but she should try and understand that she can stand up for herself as a woman and as a young woman in in this kind of world, dealing with a, you know an oppressive man who she's in love with. And there's that conflict that for me resonates a lot more. I understand. I, I kind of get that. Yeah, relating to the privileged side of it is is much more difficult. But I think there's a very universal story in there when you when you pick out the relationship and Julie's kind of, you know, struggles through that. Mm, absolutely. All right. Um, well, we, we've still got a, a wonderful interview coming up with Alona Cheshire, who is the music supervisor on the film. And uh, it's a pretty eclectic soundtrack that she helped put together here. I know people may look at the poster for this film or some of the stills and think this is quite austere, uh, <laughs> upper class stuff. Um, it's all going to be classical music. Well, think again, because this is more like now that's what I call the 80s there's some <laughs> absolute bangers in here and she worked with uh, Scorsese on vinyl oh really yep. yeah mm-hmm. yep uh, and uh, Hugo and Wolf of Wall Street same wow yeah she's a collaborator yeah. a great man uh, so <laughs> you you will oh. be going into the souvenir uh, listening to a bit of Bronsky beat psychedelic furs it's, yep. it's a great soundtrack uh, so here is Ilona Cheshire Ilona Cheshire, welcome to the Curzon Podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, so we're here to talk about the souvenir and your work on the souvenir on which you were a music supervisor. Yeah. So do you want to start by telling us a bit about what exactly a music supervisor is, what you do, and how you kind of got into this? Well, the role can work to cover different facets, mm-hmm. really, depending on whether you're working on a feature film, um, a TV series or commercials. And obviously the, the brief will be different and the requirements of the either director or the narrative will dramatically differ from product to film to mm. TV. Um, in general, I would say that a music supervisor would start with working with the director mm-hmm. or the producers and editor, depending on which phase of the process one came on board with. And it would be a case of looking at music ideas that may already exist, and if there were certain tracks that wanted to be used Mm -hmm. it would be a right we try to make that work we Mm -hmm. try to get the rights to that track and get it signed off in as quick a turnaround Mm -hmm. as possible and for as nice a fee as possible Mm -hmm. because budget constraints are major especially with more independent smaller budget filmmaking another aspect of it can be that one comes in with a narrative to work with, mm-hmm. a few ideas suggested, but to mainly consult on what music may be fitting to help complement the narrative mm-hmm. or help sell a product or just accompany and perhaps embellish a part of a story or character progression that is happening mm-hmm. at A, B, C points. and. The next stage would then be to, as I just mentioned, negotiate usage. So that's going Mm -hmm. to record labels or publishing houses to confirm who owns the the rights, whether it's the publishing or mastering rights, and find out where where a fee would need to be paid, who to, which representatives, mm-hmm. depending on whether an artist is alive or dead, etc. And then negotiating, once again, the best fee that keeps all mm-hmm. participants happy. Sure. So can you talk about the other things you've worked on before Souvenir? Yes, I was, in terms of budget yeah. and level of TV making that was certainly a breakthrough for me prior to that um, although I have a music and film background Mm. I had 
been working in film in the UK for a long time, but mainly in distribution, mm -hmm. and had smaller experiences with music supervision, whether it was short films um, or working for a composer for mainly commercials, mm -hmm. who I provided a lot of research and consultancy for. Um, it certainly was a slower process. Sure because I'm not from a record label or a sync agency, which is where nowadays most people who provide either a musical supervision or sync service are, they, they come from. Um, so it was after a couple of other projects, um, I did a lot of research on Wolf of Wall Street, mm -hmm. and I a part of that was uh, looking at music and music that the lead character whose um, book the film was adapted yeah. from, music that he was suggesting and so right. how it would work within the film and supporting on that. And so vinyl was my, my yes, my most okay. fun breakthrough. <laughs> okay, and then so going from that to the souvenir then, mm -hmm. so how did you come to be the music supervisor on the souvenir? And then can you tell us about first meeting Johanna, first reading the script and the kind of initial talks you had with her about the kind of what angle you wanted to go for the souvenir? Um, well, interestingly for me, the first time I crossed paths with mm -hmm. Johanna was at a screening of All That Jazz which was oh, at the ICA okay. many years yeah. ago, a Saturday afternoon, and she was doing an intro for it because she had selected it as a, a personal favourite. Right. And I'd wanted to see it for years, never seen it on a big screen, so double whammy, went and saw it and was sitting pretty much right under her nose. <laughs> and then it must have been a few months later, we were both at a little BAFTA reception. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anybody and she was there with her husband and I just thought, right, get your social hat on. Mm. And I went up and introduced myself to her and at that time I was working at the BFI mm -hmm. and it turned out that she remembered me from wow. this screening, probably because I was in her direct line <laughs> of vision. And so we just got chatting yeah. and it was shortly before I was going to New York to work on Wolf of Wall Street and she was out there for a little while so we caught up and we just became friends. Stayed in touch for a while, then when I came back from working on vinyl, mm -hmm. which would have been about three and a half years ago, she and I met up for coffee in that chit chat. Oh yes, I'm developing the idea for a new film. This is the outline mm. of it. I want to use music. Oh really? From me. That's interesting because you've not really used music no. in any of your films before, perhaps apart from that one scene with the car breaks down in Unrelated. Yes. And well, as you can tell, I, I was familiar with her films. I, I really admire her filmmaking. And so we just started a discussion there about using my music mm. origin experience to work on a soundtrack for her. I saw the first drafts of the, the screenplay mm -hmm. and started to create a list with Joanna's initial ideas in, also identifying when there may be spots in mm. the screenplay that music wasn't allocated, but perhaps it was right. needed or it would have perhaps just embellished the mm. scene a little bit more. So music in a period setting then, quite often in films and TV shows when something's set in London in the 80s, you immediately start hearing London Calling or something <laughs> like that. Um, can you talk about, yeah, so like picking music for a period setting that isn't obvious, that kind of, you know, immediately makes people think, okay, I'm in London in the 80s, but not like, oh, I'm in London in the 80s. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, completely. Um, for me... Because I had the opportunity to delve into my own record collection mm. a fair bit um, and 
although I had moved to London a, a decade later, um, I, I mentioned having a music background. I, although I was studying film, I was working for Rough Trade, mm-hmm. the record cool. shops, and I was I was the first woman to be allowed on the Covent Garden shop floor. Really? Yes. Wow. <laughs> and I started <laughs> the jazz section there as well. So I'm, I, yeah, I hold on to that yeah, quite fondly. It's an honour. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it just meant that I, on a kind of personal excitement mm-hmm. level, felt that. It was a really interesting area to play with because you don't want to have a really formulaic soundtrack Mm. and also you don't want to have music that's going to be distracting right and as i mentioned earlier the ideal is to have um music that will both complement the film and if someone in the audience is kind of listening without getting distracted mm. one hopes yeah. they will have a moment of pleasure in that oh I like that yeah. or, that reminds me of something and considering the audiences that probably are already keen on mm-hmm. Joanna's films um, myself being one it was quite easy to think well let's look at music that this young film student her friends mm-hmm. would be listening to because they're filmmakers or aspiring yeah. artists and they probably wouldn't just be listening to the bog standard yeah. chart topping stuff. They probably would be thinking that Marquis Smith, he's a funny old fella, mm-hmm. let's get some fall on. And especially when there are a couple of party scenes. Yes. What are the tracks in the film that you think sort of really sum up? feel and mood of the souvenir I, I, I do think that the Robert Wyatt mm-hmm. shipbuilding yeah. there's something very haunting about it and it's it supports the visual at a nice interesting point mm. in, in, in the film as Julie's already met Anthony and she is progressing with her filmmaking mm-hmm. and it just reinforces that message of mm the social study that she wanted to portray before she changes course. And finally then, I just wanted to ask, so your work on Wolf of Wall Street and vinyl, so working with Scorsese, who is someone who is very famous for being being very specific about music in his films, and, you know, he, uh, he sees that something being very important in his films compared to Joanna who's never really used music before what were those two kind of opposites like oh um that's really interesting because with Joanna her and the fact that this film is such a kind of personal sure, testament yeah. to a, a past love and point in her life um it was a much more personal experience for her mm. and so I was being sensitive towards that but also her filmmaking plus I was aware that there was so much that I could bring to this film to her creative vision mm. while she had her own ideas she was very receptive mm. to to new ones but with working with someone who obviously is a master in the truest sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess because I knew him well enough by that yeah. point that he yeah. wasn't intimidating to me and is someone that I can joke about with. Mm. <laughs> it was more a case of he he has particular ideas, he knows how he wants to use them. Mm. It's very much about everything being time-specific, tiny detail. There were a number of other stakeholders right. in the process that would have a, a certain expectation of a commercial level yeah. and therefore the soundtrack that goes with it. Okay, Alona Cheshire, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Okay, right. Uh, so we, ha- we have come to the end of our chat on the souvenir. Uh, any, any final points that you want to get off your chest? You think we've we've got it all out there? 
Yeah, I th- I I love this film. I think it's I think it's wonderful. It, it reminds me a lot of Phantom Thread um, in many ways. I don't. I mean, it's not you know, it's not the kind of like dark comedy that Phantom Thread sort of has. But there's something about how precise and loose at the same time, and the aesthetics of the films I think are quite similar. Um, yeah, there's and the, that kind of the strange balance of a domineering relationship. There's yeah, there's a lot that harks back to Phantom Thread for me, which I love. So yeah, absolutely. Um... And once you've seen The Souvenir, uh, there is another film out this week uh, called Bait, which I think is definitely worth giving a mention to. Uh, we'd normally try and spend a bit more time on it, but time time has run short this yes, week. Yes, it's a shame we don't have time to talk about Bait because I think it's a really wonderful film. Definitely catch it if you can. Um, yeah, beautiful, um, solid British new film. You know, it's really, really good. Kind of... Um bit of an expressionist film. Yeah, it feels like it's from another time. It looks like it's been pulled out of the ground. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Shot on 16. Yeah, black and white 16. It's it's great. It's really, really good. All right. Um, And I know we'd normally pass to our on-demand correspondent, Sam Howlett, but sadly he has betrayed us. Uh, (laughs) um, But I know that he would love for me to tell you all that there is a Joanna Hogg collection on Curzon Home Cinema and that features all of her previous films. So that is Unrelated, Exhibition, Archipelago. Uh, if you're a Tom Hiddleston fan, it's, yeah, a, it's a good it's a time good. to be visiting home cinema. Um, <laughs> but of course, The Souvenir is on there as well as being in cinemas. So I would recommend checking out all four of those films. Um, and if it's your first time listening to the show and you've enjoyed it, please do subscribe. You can do it on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, wherever you get your podcasts. Um and if you've got any thoughts on the souvenir, we would love to hear them. Uh, we're on Twitter at Curzon Cinemas, um, but all of us individually, we are there as well. I'm there as at Jake H. Cunningham. Uh, Kelly? KS underscore Powell. And Caitlin. And I am at CSA Quinlan. And it's been a pleasure talking to both of you about this film. Thank um, you very much. Thanks. Look forward to the next time. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.